0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding. Thank you so much for tuning in here today. I am sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how are we doing? I'm doing very well, Andrew. How are you doing? Doing great. Hope everyone is doing great as well. If you want to get access to our very long podcast podcast. Backlog. 250 plus episodes. Go to focuscompounding.com and sign up there. And if you also sign up there, you will get access to our premium podcast that gets uploaded on the weekend. Check it out. You can download the app that's associated on any app store, both iOS and Android. Just type in Focus Compounding and you will see our wonderful logo. So in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about working capital and the cash flow statement. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are very interested in learning about the cash flow statement because it always gets the most views whenever we upload Mm -hmm. something about it. And I figured we could just look at different companies that have different, you know, working capital cycles or, you know, different cash flow statements, stuff like that. And, you know, really go from there. Um, You know, so first of all, what is because the lifeblood of a company is it's working capital yeah right so let's start at square one okay what is working capital for a business all right so working capital for a business is things that
1: will turn into cash or that will be uses of cash naturally within a short period of time basically so it has to do with the quickness of the assets or how liquid they are that way um I'd say quick is a better way of do, is saying it because it doesn't really require any special things to happen with some of them. So um, as an example, and that's how they're listed in the balance sheet, right? Mm-hmm. So you used to seeing that. So the quickest asset is cash because it's already in cash. But then after that, you have things like accounts receivable, which will naturally turn to cash as they're collected. Inventories, which for most companies turn, they're sold at some point pretty fast so that they'll also become cash. And um, And then you have your working liabilities, which the most... Common one, I guess people could think of is you're probably working somewhere and you get paid. You get paid on a lag uh, every two weeks or something for work that you've done. Um, So, at any point in which the balance sheet would be prepared, because balance sheets are a moment in time, uh, you're owed money by the company. You're always owed money by the company, except for, you know, um, on one day or whatever, maybe for you. So, um, for that reason, Uh, there's lots of liabilities like that, right? And so the combination of those two things, the assets that you have on one side and the liabilities on the other, form this um, short-term balance sheet that you have as opposed to the long-term stuff, which is like property plan and equipment and things like that.
0: Okay, so it's, you know, you go over to the cash flow statement, Mm -hmm. right? And you get net income and then you have these adjustments, if you will, for working capital items. Mm -hmm. Why do they do that?
1: Well, so the method... So this is the reconciliation method and it's used in place of the direct method because I think it is the uh, only reasonable way of doing it for big companies. So direct would be actually counting the cash in and out of a business and stuff. That's not how it works. Instead, they start with a net income number, which I guess people are familiar with and they work back from there by adjusting for things which are changes in the balance sheet, which are not reflected in the net income, if that makes sense. So, um, a way to think about that is, uh, I think one part that's a little tough for people is, first of all, it almost seems the opposite, which is that contributions to working capital are going to show up as positive numbers, and then negative numbers are going to be uses of cash. But a negative number that's a use of cash for an asset item is actually an increase in that item, okay? So if you see change in receivables, parentheses, 255, right? Yeah. That means receivables went up 255 million. It does not mean that they went um, down. It's actually a positive number. It's a use of cash. But I think they tell you that you know um, on the balance sheet of that you'll actually see in the 10K or whatever will be use of cash uh, kind of thing. We'll like show parentheses somewhere to help you understand that idea. Mm-hmm. And then that the between those two items you'll get a number, and you could look at net income on the top number and then cash flow from operations, right, or net operating cash flow, and say, okay, how big is this gap? And then in your mind, you can do one of those bridges that they love to do in like presentations where they show you where each of the items comes from that causes it. And, um, you can see all the different items and how much contributed from, uh, those things. So like here we're looking at Amazons, right? We can see that overwhelmingly it's changed in other working capital. That's a huge contribution, right? Mm -hmm. Um, it's all changing other working capital with some other things mixed in like in recent years it's also depreciation depletion and amortization which i guess must have to do with their aws business um it must not be from their retail business or i don't think it is because it was such a small percentage item in earlier years um there's also some stock based things
0: which yeah as you can see that gets added back so what about negative working capital cycles
1: so that will happen that you can see here. And this is the best way to do it is if you look in the difference between the assets and liabilities that you have. And this is why I think working capital is kind of a problem for people to think about. But the, I think when people look at working capital, uh, at uh, cash flow statements, they want, it to, they want to just look, same as with net income, they want to just look, what's the bottom line? Okay, so they'd want to talk about net income, they don't want to talk about gross profit, right? Same thing here. They want to talk about, like, they just want to take that cash flow from operations number and subtract out net purchases of PP&E and say that's free cash. Sure. Which it is. But the problem (laughs) is that understanding the other items we're talking about requires understanding the business better. Because every business is different that way. And so it's actually looking at things like how long does it take to collect receivables? How quickly does inventory turn? And then things about how about your liabilities? Do you have deferred revenue and on liabilities? Um, how long do they take for some of them? I've said before the good thing to do is to take to focus in on a few items. The ones I would focus in on are receivables, inventory, among working capital items, and then you also pp e for a, a long-term item. And then on the liability side, you really for most companies are only going to have to worry about um, accrued expenses and accounts payable for many companies, accounts payable and receivables are going to be pretty similar. And then you're going to want to compare how much there are accrued expenses or deferred revenue or any other working uh, liabilities. How similar are they to offsetting inventory, right? Other things to keep in mind, of course, are also the price of the, the um, value at which certain items are stated is different than people think I guess, for whatever reason, whenever I talk to people, I think they don't remember that inventory is stated on the balance sheet at the lower of cost or or market. So it's not marked up yet, the inventory that you're seeing. So the one thing to keep in mind is like sales, if sales is 300 million and inventory shrunk by 200 million that actually could be the same thing you could have liquidated all of your inventory by doing that because your inventory is carried at the uh your cost whereas if you marked up 200 million dollars worth of inventory to 300 million your your cash flow statement is only going to show the disappearance of the 200 million of inventory even though you had 300 million in sales i only bring that up because people say that where they're like where did this come from or where did it go or Mm -hmm. something it didn't go anywhere you have to look at cost of goods sold on the income statement which is fine but same idea like when i talk to people about income statements they always talk to me about the net income and stuff but don't talk about like gross cost of goods sold things like that so you have to match cost of goods sold off with inventory things like that
0: Mm -hmm. now uh, i guess let's say how would you think about it let's say a company draws out on their receivables which we've seen some companies do in 2020 Mm -hmm. right the first thing they did was you know, draw down on credit lines and stuff like that, but also try to bring in those receivables, that cash into the business. So how would you think about it, I guess extrapolate it out if you saw like a company in 2020, because it is timely where their cash flow from operations could have potentially really jumped up? I mean, would you just try to average it out and then kind of think about it from that perspective? Yeah, you have to average it out over time. Um because a lot of people always ask too how do you project changes in working capital? How do you project changes in working capital? You always say just take an average. (laughs) Like, you know, that's a very hard question.
1: Well, no, I mean, you have to take an average to do the calculation of free cash flow, but the calculation people are doing for free cash flow and things like that, you have to keep in mind, it's not a steady state calculation that they're doing. They always talk about what free cash flow is, but free cash flow at any point in time is reflecting the change in the, the, um, Trajectory of all the different asset levels there. And this is very important. If a company stops growing, depending on the company, it will massively shift how much free cash flow it's either generating or not. So growth for the average company you're used to finding. So if you took your entire portfolio, all right, in general, the more a company grows, the less free cash flow it generates. All right. For some companies, that's not true. It reverses. The faster they grow the more free cash flow they generate and so those are ones where it's very important in those cases to kind of analyze that we mention companies like that all the time but some ad agencies that would happen we mention otc markets that's one where we always use as a classic example of that because it's a float generating business it's also true for financial institutions uh for like um banks and insurers and stuff sometimes people ask about like what the concept of free cash flow for them and it's not that useful And in addition to not being that useful um i mean it's it's useful, useful in that their entire business is based on thinking about cash flows and stuff like that at all levels. I mean, that's matching them off and stuff is what they do. But it's not useful in the sense that literally if your idea is something that generates a lot of free cash flows, a safe business, the easiest way to get free cash flow today for something like an insurer or a bank or something is to do dumb things. And... Um, The easiest way for the average company to generate free cash flow, honestly, is to liquidate. If their job was just to, if you were paying them just based on how much free cash flow can I generate this year, that's very easy. Sell all your inventory. Don't put in any new orders to buy more and stuff. And um, let your receivables be um, collected and stuff without making new sales. So that will turn to cash. So your receivables number will go down. You know, you take everything off of your balance sheet. People ask about like companies liquidating stuff. That's what it would look like. And some companies do liquidate slowly over time. We don't call it liquidation stuff, but they shrink the company down by doing that. So, I mean, I talked about that in my letters to investors and stuff this year about uh, Virtue Motors. A big thing about it would be how much could it take of its balance sheet strength and turn that into cash. And it was successful doing that. But it was successful because car uh, dealers had a lot of demand from customers coming in, but weren't aggressively restocking. So you can turn that into a lot of cash. So if you have hundreds of millions of, of pounds in that, that case of car inventory, you can turn it into cash, mm-hmm. right? And it's the same. And so it's like a real basic understanding of the business is the important thing is like you walk, I mean, to understand working capital, like you walk into the stores and walk around and go, how much is here? And what do I think about that? And that's how I think about it when I look at these companies that same way is like, okay, so how much is on the... Um, store floor and stuff and how can that be turned into cash and when you see it piling up that's your sign that there's too much of it and it's a real problem i mean read the dempster mill descriptions of dempster uh um with uh, berkshire because it's a really good example of a company that really only did two things after buffett bought it one they raised prices on things where they were the sole supplier which is a smart move um because they were charging like the same for original equipment and um for their uh, after sales, right? So mm-hmm. uh, that's one part. But the other part was just trying to do the same business with less capital in it. And what they realized is they had way too much capital in the business. And that's surprisingly can be true. When you look at companies, sometimes you're, you're like, I don't think they need this much inventory. They could probably do the same amount of business with a lot less inventory. How do you tell if a business has
0: pricing power with their suppliers? Um, it's a little
1: complicated so one is a working capital aspect to it right so in general in general if the more inventory a company feels it has to carry and the better the payment plans it's offering the more the extension of credit are two really strong signs that they don't have pricing power and i don't think people realize this because they look and they just go oh here's the margin right so they're like oh you have a lot of pricing power if i can sell a hundred dollar item um, for $200, then I make 50% profit. That's plenty of pricing power. But if I sell you a $100 item for $200 and give you 90 days to pay me back at no interest, and I have to give you a very broad selection, then I don't have pricing power. Very poor selection is a, that you're still buy is a strong indicator. I mean, maybe the strongest indicator is you'll still buy if there's a stock out. So. I'm not, I don't have the product. It'll be here in a week. Do you still want to place the order? Yes. Then I have a lot of pricing power. That to me has always been the clearest one for actual merchandise of that. So like people may think jewelers have strong pricing power, but they don't because they have to carry incredibly high amounts of inventory that turns very slowly. So each sale might be good, but it can be like selling a car or selling a house or something. It's a big deal for this salesperson when they make this commission because it's hard to actually close the deal. So the thing is not selling itself very well. Um, so, and then the other items would be the gross margin, which we talked about. So gross margin is very important, but it's also the turns. And, um, to some extent, it's also stuff you can find in the free, in free cash flow stuff because it is stuff about credit. Like we have Amazon here. One big issue people should keep in mind with Amazon is the difference between serving consumers and serving businesses. If Amazon sells to households, it can collect the money right away. But if Amazon sells to a business it may have to extend credit to the business, mm-hmm. which can change the retail aspect of Amazon's business quite a bit. So sometimes people are surprised when they're like, well, like they'll say things like, well, what if Amazon offers a lower price than this other company? Unless they offer credit for it, then I don't, you know, they're not going to get a lot of business. Like why would a business buy at a 2% discount from Amazon instead of getting 90 days to pay at a higher price? You might want that discount, but those are not exactly on even things for a very well financed business and stuff. Maybe you want that. Maybe you'd rather 2% discount f- for the 90 days, but most businesses would rather take a long time to pay than do that. Um, so whereas consumers have no ability to barter with you on that. So
0: you get to collect
1: right away from them, from,
0: from the um, payment processors and stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm always so interested to see, you know, start with the income statement and then see where we end up on the operating cash flow that's like one of that's where my eyes really go Mm -hmm. right so i'm kind of curious where do you start i mean why don't we just use cash flow
1: okay well you can just use cash flow. you can do any of these things if your interest is like quantitative and not worrying about how the business really works Mm -hmm. but there are some issues so like for instance how much stock compensation is there that's an obvious one i was gonna say what are your thoughts on that Well, I don't like stock compensation being taken out of earnings and stuff exactly. I mean, I don't care about earnings, so it doesn't really matter that much. I care about cash flow, and I care about the share count. And so the accounting for stock-based compensation works very well for me, which is it's going to show up there in cash flows and stuff, but then I'm going to take it back in the sense of it um, increasing the share count over time. Mm -hmm. So I feel that for most companies— the numbers that really matter are not in any sense, what kind of compensation they're providing employees in terms of the value based on the stock based compensation, but how much they dilute their share count. So I think that a history of share dilution over time is a better indicator of what they're going to do in the future than seeing what it looks like right now. Sure. That makes sense. I think it's very discretionary. What they choose as their stock based compensation. So, um, but then it does, dilu- it does distort earnings in some ways. Um, that can be odd. I've only seen it with like startup type things and stuff where it's really a big deal. Where I looked and went, Oh, you know, without this stock based compensation, actually, their earnings would be pretty good and stuff. And then you look at the cash flow statement and you're like, Well, yes, but they're diluting by so much and they're basically giving it to salespeople in place of like commissions and stuff. So they always need to make these payments. Like if they stop diluting with their stock, they're going to have to pay out big bonuses to these people, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but in some cases, they're just giving stock compensation to people who don't need it. So, um, and then, so that's one reason why you wouldn't use it, right? But the other reason is like really understanding these things. So, I mean, Amazon is a hard one to look at because it's just going to be constantly growing, right? Hmm. But if we look at some other companies cyclically and stuff like that, like cyclical ones, it'll be a very big deal. Um, there'll be big changes in re- receivables and inventory stuff relative to sales. Um, it's more like, I guess, an easy way for people to think about it is like an insurer, right? So if you look at an insurer... As they increase or decrease their premiums, there's going to be changes to their float. And even this, we don't talk about that much. But like I talk about it like you just look at the underwriting ratios and things like that, the combined ratios and stuff for insurers. But really what you look at is stuff like how long tail their business is and stuff. So how much float does it actually generate versus what they're writing and the profitability of that and things like that. Same thing here. It's not just like what's reported in terms of your results, but also what's happening in terms of your earnings. It's also what's happening in terms of your actual capital tied up in the business. You always would rather have it in cash than anything else. Now, I guess you could just do the calculation like here. We have uh, micron technology, right? Mm -hmm. You could just do a calculation and say, okay, well, what's an average, you know, like Mm -hmm. we talk about that all the time. You could just average it out, but we'll instead look at, um, I don't like that because I like looking at line by line. Um as you can see with micron, what we have an example where um both net income and cash flow from operations and stuff is like seven times higher in one year than another or more. Um so if we look there's big differences here, right? Between net income and cash flow from operations. We have uh, three, four years where they have negative net income, but they still have positive cash flow from operations. But then we sometimes have a year where they have very high um, net income. Let's see where that is. And um, they don't necessarily have a lot higher cash flow from operations. That's more in the middle years that we can see that, that there's not a big change that way. Um, so and then the, you have your CapEx stuff. Okay, now to me, always you have to factor in the capex stuff, right so there's plenty of years where they're free cash flow negative how I would de- how I would define it as being below uh, as you know so if we look there, you see free cash flow is often negative and, and stuff like that um, because of the capital expenditures so let's see the what items are shifting around a lot change in receivables and change in inventory right are two items that change a lot? Correct. yeah, and that is causing the total change
0: in the working capital so too unpredictable of a business for you to ever be interested in.
1: Yeah, this is a very popular stock with value investors. It's more the issue that I think the company hasn't really created much value over like 30 years or more, except um in situations of like shortage. I just be very careful because my concern it's not so much that it's just unpredictable or something. These are other people who buy it may understand it a lot better. I have difficulty understanding it well enough to know if I would miss um, if I would think that business was fairly normal when it was just a temporary shortage, because it'll become very profitable in a shortage.
0: I know a lot of investing is about timing, Mm -hmm. but do you think with companies like this, you really need to be right about timing? Timing Uh, the cycle?
1: I do, but other people may think that it's not a cycle or something. You know, that something fundamentally has changed for good. But I think that this is normally a company which only makes economic profits of any kind. Otherwise, it doesn't create any value, except in shortage periods. So there has to be some sort of... um, you know, boom, that it can't keep up with, basically, that the industry can't keep up with. But, of course, if things have changed so that the industry doesn't get oversupplied, then th- it would be a permanent change. So maybe some people are buying it based on permanent change. I've seen some investors who are not very speculative investors, you know, who do focus on the longer term, um, looking at Micron. Uh, buy, I mean, owning a lot of Micron, so. Mm.
0: Let's look at the working capital of right. the cruise company. So
1: generally entertainment type companies generally you can use um EBITDA minus CapEx everyone likes EBITDA minus CapEx right isn't that their favorite measure it is to write it up? gives off the
0: higher, it, it higher, gives you a higher
1: number the company can use it because the company will be happy to tell you what EBITDA and CapEx are they won't tell you what the cash flow from operations are yeah um I mean they will in their 10ks and stuff but not in their presentation uh so companies like this theme park companies um uh Cruise companies, um, all those sorts of things, movie theater things. They generally don't use a lot of working capital, but there is a little difference. They use very ha- heavy CapEx, these companies. So so EBITDA minus CapEx makes some sense, but there is a difference where there is um, uh, advanced payments. So advanced payments are important to the cruise industry. The most famous example of that is that's how Carnival got started. Uh, it, it basically used the money of already sold stuff to then go out and get the ship and, and do oh, it. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I did not yeah. know that. No, no, that's the history of carnival. That's pretty so fascinating. Then that's, that started. So, yeah, and that's true for a lot of these things. Actually, historically, if you could, like a concert or something, one of the advantages of it could be, uh, and this was done all the time, you know, half a century the ago. The float you get from it. Uh, y- yeah, you can, if you go out long enough, you actually don't have to have, you can promise something you don't have, collect the money, mm-hmm. and then, Provide the thing that you intended to. It's kind
0: of like the fire festival.
1: Yeah, except for that didn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> so um, anyway, so as a re- result of that, um, Carnival's working capital is not very uh, high. The amount of working capital it uses versus its overall business, pretty, um, it's pretty low. So it ends up with very good cash flow from operations compared to net income. Very good, and then it all goes into CapEx. So I mean you'll see some things where people talk about like um, companies with real problems in their earnings. I don't know if you've read those kinds of books, but like uh, quality of earnings types books you yeah know? and books about companies to short and everything and one of the things they mention is companies where the net income is less than the uh, i mean sorry where the cash flow from operations is less than the net income yeah. is a warning sign um. For many of the companies we're going to look at, cash flow from operations is always quite a bit higher than the net income. And you can see that here. Uh, Theirs is always
0: higher. Um, Do you agree with that assessment of that being a warning sign? Yeah. I mean, that could tell you this model where to me, that could tell me they're very focused on EPS potentially,
1: or they could just be very bullish and very dumb. Um, That I think that's how small businesses go broke is they report positive earnings while at the same time having no cash flow from operations. So, um, you sell something off your shelf. All right. So, um, and y- y- you, know, you sell a piece of furniture and you go, wow, that sold really well. I'll buy two. Okay. Okay. And then you make a sale to a bigger account and you're like, Oh, I'll give you 120 days now. I'll give you. And then you look at the end of the month and you're like, wait, how did I, how do I not have? Where's my cash? cash flow? Yeah. Because I'm making money, right? Yeah, yeah, And then you go to a bank and you're like, I'm making money, but I don't have cash, so you'll be happy to give me money, right? I think that that is a thing that does happen with small businesses, aggressive businesses. I think that's something that would happen. I think Phil Knight
0: wrote about that in Shoe Dog. Yeah, how that was that, problem, that was that was an issue for him. He
1: didn't think that about he, that. Through. And he was a C.
0: I think he was a CPA too. But of course, running a business, maybe whatever. But well, he I just think you always want
1: to fill every order and make the bigger order. Correct. Know, For
0: him, it was like, how do we have no cat? Like, what's going on here? Yeah, yeah,
1: and um, that yeah, it, it's an issue, and I think that there, it could be fraud type things and stuff. I mean, I've mentioned some companies and things, and where do I suspect there are fraud problems and things? I tend to suspect that they're in. There are a few different ways of how I tend to think it is. One is sales. I think it's very easy to game what's a sale, uh, especially if you're kind of vague about what your company does. Um, And especially if analysts don't care about, like, why did the gross margin drop and stuff? You could just book anything as a sale. Um, So I think sales is the least reliable number ever.
0: Wasn't it AOL that was accused of Mm -hmm. legal battles with other companies and the way they settled was basically through future revenue growth for AOL, like instead of like giving them cash, the company that, you know, they sued or whatever, it was basically just buy our product or work with us. in, in a way, it was like a way that they kind of gamed uh, revenue growth.
1: Yeah. There's some things that are pretty complicated that we're, we're talking about a company where, you know, they have to, and this is an accounting thing that they have to do, but if they sue someone who owes them money, uh, the customer who, uh, it's not quite a customer, but same sort of idea. Um, Basically, if they're owed receivables that they're supposed to get um, and they sue someone over it, then they have to capitalize the law the, the what they're paying the legal firm over time as a receivable, which then gets collected when it gets paid off or when there's a judgment in their favor and stuff. And then it's finally paid in cash because it's the same sort of concept, the judgment that they get from a court will end up being on the balance sheet just like a receivable. And then it will go to cash if the company uh, you know, does eventually one day pay off what they've been ordered to. But I know that that's very confusing for some people. Like some people looking to are like, wait, so if they book a million dollars in legal fees, their receivables go up by a million dollars. But yes, that is in fact what's happening with that company. Um, That's what has to happen. That's the way that it works. And 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 then, but but to be like, so to understand why it's done, these things are done this way and stuff. That means you won't report in earnings the actual payment for you. Okay, so like when someone had been ordered to pay you money and then they don't for a while and then they finally pay you the money that won't show up as a million dollars of earnings. That's you know, this solves that problem. So when we're talking about things like inventory and stuff, if I um, if when we you're not the reason why you're seeing this with like, I think earnings and receivables being the two biggest issues is that very promotional companies seem to be very focused on sales, sales growth more than anything else. And to some extent, earnings, but I don't even know if earnings as much as sales, you know. And if you were going to, pr- this is what I was saying before. Like, if you're going to pursue sales at the risk of anything, then what signs would you see of problems with it? I'd see if gross signs. margins. Gr- so gross profits would go down. Correct. Your gross margin would go down, right? Two, your turns on gross basis would go down, so your inventory would rise faster than your sales. And three, your payment terms would get worse, so your receivables um, would also lengthen. So all of that is seen as like they call it like um, about different fraud things. They have different names for it. But in a sense, all of those are just loosening up for the customer, like just being willing to give them too good a deal. And that may not be obvious, but like, so putting too much stuff in my store, um, having too much inventory on hand, like think about it. I want to make a big sale to someone. Okay. Like a, you were saying with Nike and stuff, right? What's the easiest way to make a big sale? I, I want to sell a million dollars worth of shoes or something. Okay. Well, I can give them a discount, a rebate, whatever. That hurts my gross mar- margin. Uh, two, I can be ready to ship right now. So I bought all the shoes speculatively. Okay. That'll help close the deal. Today. Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then three, I'll give them more time to pay me. Yeah. Extended. So if I said to you, I'm going to give you a rebate. Um, I don't get to do this for everyone else, but I'll do it for you. And, uh, I can ship right now and you don't pay me until you've got them. And you probably, you may not have to pay me until you sold them. Um, do you want to do this deal? Sold. Then you're a lot more likely
0: to do it. Where do I sign?
1: But then if you do that this period, right? The next, and you grew 20%, the next period, you have to do even more of that. Do it again. And you're chasing lower and lower quality sales because if you had really high quality sales, the people would come to you. They wouldn't need a lot of inventory on hand right now. They'd wait for it. Um, they wouldn't need really nice terms from you in terms of how long you'd let them pay. And they wouldn't need you know, different rebates and things. So it, I think it's always talked about as a sign of fraud and stuff. And I believe it can be a sign of fraud and everything. But I also think it can be a sign of overly aggressively chasing sales. Like if you had a company and instead of having accountants and stuff running stuff there, you just let the people who had been like salesmen working on commission run the company. Why would it go broke pretty quickly is because it would start having rapid sales growth with net income that looked very bad versus cash flow from operations because no one was focusing on we actually need to bring in cash. They just would say, "How do I close this deal?" Let's How do book I close it, this deal? sure and if you do that, if you just start focused on booking more and more sales, then the way that, that it would happen would be increasing receivables, increasing inventory in the sense of increasing faster than sales, and our uh, worse gross margins too, yeah um but that could show sales increasing and could even show earnings increasing if you did enough of it and it would work for a while. But the problem too is that then it would become even worse because you've taken more and more of the, you've kind of used up a lot of your potential customers by doing that. Um, So that's why I think you look at those sorts of items. um, They can be an indicator of problems ahead Uh, and people with short stocks and things look at that. I mean, in terms of a cycle, we just did micron. That's where it would show up in the cycle would be um, something like two. I mean, uh, the obvious one would be inventory, I guess. We could look at Micron. I don't know how far back their record goes. Let me pull it up again. And there's certain ratios that you can calculate for this. Um, Like you can do um, inventory divided by cost of goods sold and stuff to see how fast the inventory is moving.
0: Ah. Sometimes when we record, I can okay. only have two open at a time. Okay. Bandwidth it
1: shows that the uh, company has, and as things slowed down, that would be an indication that you might be uh, cyclically at a tough point. Micron might have to be month by uh, month, I mean month by month, quarter by quarter balance sheet to get a feel for it because um, of the cyclicality in that industry. How short the cycle is, but
0: um, well, we got no internet. We are flying dark. Uh,
1: so people use that people who are interested in cyclical industries and stuff. Look at that.
0: What are your thoughts on companies that don't retain any of their earnings? Uh-huh. So they have like negative retained earnings, uh, but they, you know, generate a lot of cash and obviously pay it all out in the form of either, you know, dividends. I mean, what are your thoughts on business? Well, that'd Does be that a financial
1: engineering thing. It's not really something that could naturally happen to a business. I
0: mean, it could a lot of times when you see companies that do that, they always have a ton of financial leverage.
1: Yeah, it's a private equity strategy. Other than private equity, firms influenced by private equity and stuff, I can't really think of people who've done that, of companies who have done that. Um, But yeah, it means that you keep taking full advantage of the fact that you can borrow money. So because banks will lend you money, you're replacing 100% of the equity in your business so you don't have to keep owner money in the business. You can take out all the earnings that you have and leave in only the bank's capital. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and now can happen with very predictable businesses. It's not that it's unsafe. It's possibly safe with some very predictable businesses. Like let's say decades ago, 2000 or whatever, Microsoft wanted to to borrow a ton of money, buy back stock or whatever, or pay out dividends from then on and not put anything more in their business. They would be safe. It wouldn't be a problem. I'm sure there are other companies that I could think of that are the same idea. Uh, They don't need to be run with any owner capital in them.
0: Mm hmm. Got it. I'm going to pause this really quick and we'll see if we could get the quarterly data up for Micron because I think it would be cool to go over. So I'm just going to pause. <laughs> All right, guys, guess what? Ladies and gentlemen, the lights are working again. We are back on. So we have the quarterly information uh-huh. for Micron. Now, okay. so you, you said that you thought going over a quarterly one would be better. So there is the changes in working capital.
1: Right. So you see changes in receivables, inventory, all of that. So at some points you'll see, um, if we look at inventory, for instance, you can see the, um, how, uh, rapid the increases in some periods versus others. So like, um, let's see, we can see that it actually generates some cash at times. Um, so compared to like when we talked about Amazon, this is a pretty big difference. There's cyclicality here. So, the idea would be if we can we look at the um, balance sheet sure. quarterly, yeah. So if you look here, we can highlight. Let's highlight inventories, yeah. And then you can see the levels of inventory that they have. Now that's an absolute level, but what you'd want to do is that to compare that to other things in the business, like obviously um, the sales and things like that. So if we go back, we can see. Uh, I mean, if we go back in the balance sheet, sorry, uh, to previous years, um,
0: you can. Can I see the annual numbers? Sure, yeah. I could pull it up, Jeff. You okay. know why? Because we've got quick FS. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was the annual one.
1: I guess some of these things are difficult for people to think about because they involve things on different um, statements. So like I said, the things that matter are like sales over cost of goods sold and stuff. Uh, Inventory over cost of goods sold. Yeah. So the turns of the inventory, I don't know if we talk about that enough Things like how fast is the inventory Do you always look
0: at that? Or does that depend on the business? Like if you're looking at a company that owns auto dealerships, that's probably very important.
1: Right. So it depends entirely on the business. For most businesses, we invest in inventories are fairly minor concern. They're not very major at all. For very cyclical companies and for any sort of very cyclical retail company, it's incredibly important what the inventories are. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So we have the annual balance sheet up. So if we highlight the inventories there you can see how dramatic the changes are sometimes. So um, as you can see, right? Yeah. Inventory doubled between 2005 and 2007. Um, but then it declined all the way down in 2009 to what? that's about 35% decline or something like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. So that's a, Interesting thing, like, I mean, Amazon's never going to have its inventory down 35%. Its inventory is always going to be more and more inventory. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can see that, and then you have rapid increases again. So it doubles in one year after that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So depending on, you'd have to look to find peers and things like that. What you don't want to see probably is very rapid inventory growth, and then you buy in. Uh, It's usually better to buy in. At the point at which the inventory would be a lot lower in the cycle, yeah, and that's going to be true for lots of markets, obviously. That buying in at a point of low inventory predicts good future returns, like we, you just said about with um, like uh, a car dealer or something, right? Mm-hmm. So, if you buy at a point at which you know car uh, used car inventory is low, then it makes it much more likely that used car prices are about to rise and that gross uh profit per car and stuff is going to go up, and that's going to make your reported earnings look better.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously you can invest in these companies, right? There's people that specialize in investing in semiconductors Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. They obviously understand the business. Do you think Buffett, he just would never go in this area because of how unpredictable it is and because there is more of that timing aspect to it? Maybe,
1: he was in the textile business and textiles and semiconductors have certain features that are incredibly similar. So um, basically having to do with how short the cycle is and inventory stuff. Um, they're the same thing They you'll see very strange returns on invested capital numbers for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, even if you want to speculate in it, it's a good idea to look for things to see, um, if you like, yeah, let's see, can we, let's look at change in inventory for instance. Yeah.
0: So we got that right there.
1: Okay. So changing inventory. So I, I'm not suggesting speculating and stuff. But if you were going to invest in businesses where that's happening, um, you would notice things in 2012, 13, 14, and 15 um, that would be pretty interesting because of the change in inventory gener- is generating cash in those periods. Um, that would make you think about what does this mean? Um, and then I think you might take it as a warning sign when you see big increases in inventory. So in 20. 20- 19 you saw a major use of cash i guess was inventory cash went out correct yeah Yeah. which is fine i mean if the future's getting better and everything but if you assume that that's not the case and that the future is fluctuating around like a Uh, the past uh, averages, then if you were going to speculate in companies like this, you would become more interested in them when you saw them liquidating inventory, start thinking, oh, should I buy into this and stuff and become less likely to want to buy into them at later periods where that's happening. In a sense, almost when they were selling off their inventory, you'd want to think about buying. And when they were buying inventory, you'd want to think about selling. And the same idea should apply in fashion things. For the same reason. So when some company you might be interested in gets kind of overstuffed with um, clothes that can't sell and then has to mark them down to sell and stuff, that might actually be the time when you look at them and say, oh, maybe earnings are temporarily hurt by this and I can get into it now. And then the time where they're like, everything's flying off the shelf, you might want to say, oh, I don't actually want to get in now when they're buying stuff because the inventory they're buying right now might actually have a hard time selling it. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, the inventory one's the easiest one to see that way, I think um and we said you can do inventory turnover numbers and stuff which is one way of looking at it and be a little cautious when
0: and how do you do that calculation
1: oh so um the one that i think would be the best calculation for people to use is um you could do it either way but inventory over cost of goods sold so where's our let's look at our balance sheet here
0: uh inventory is the highlighted one
1: okay so we're at 5 billion or so sure then okay and then we can go to income statement cost of goods sold were what 14.8
0: billion okay Assuming that was so
1: if eight, you're yeah. selling right so if you're selling in a um year you're selling say 15 billion or something worth of things at the cost um and yet you only have in any given moment what five Correct, yeah. Then that means that you're turning your inventory every four months. Um, 15 divided by 5 is 3. 12 divided by 3 is
0: 4. I see what you're saying. So
1: about every four months. uh, So
0: how much cost of goods sold went through the business and then the balance sheet is you know, snapshot in time. So it shows you where it's at.
1: Right. But then that's also a thing that you need to be kind of like concerned about or whatever in that thinking about, okay, so if they increase their, if you saw a shocking increase in inventory, like 1.5 billion or something, that's like, they just bought four months more worth of inventory than they normally did. But what's a bigger issue with that is if sales themselves move around a lot, like sales here were a lot lower before, then what you think is four months of inventory could be six months of inventory. And why that would be an issue is let's say that you buy four months more inventory than you normally do. Okay. But you also happen to do it at a moment when sales, the velocity of it's going to slow down. Now it's six months of inventory. What you actually know from the stock is we have to sell at a very bad rate for six months to get ourselves back out of this. Sure, again. yeah. Um, we could do that with another company that costs. So like if you look at those turnover things, probably some company where we understand what the product is or something would help. We could do a, we could do a car dealer. We could do a supermarket. We could do something where people have a real
0: idea of like more of
1: a product they can imagine in their life.
0: what are you typically looking for when you look at turns is there like a general rule of thumb
1: yeah the higher the turns the less speculative the business is gonna be the lower the turns the more speculative it's gonna be
0: got it okay Um, so for right here we have inventories of village supermarkets okay uh, 39 million all right inventory you look at income statement cost of goods sold in 2020 1.2 1. 1. 1.2 yeah 1.3 billion 1.3 billion
1: yeah so again wow. you could do the calculation there yeah so the easier way here is to calculate how many times it um so how many times you turn it over so that's being turned over what over 30 times sure if i take this big number here and divide it into that number we said that was 40 and then we go here and this number is 1300 so yeah let's say it's over 30 times so that would mean you know that that's happening in It's not that much more than 10 days. I mean, it depends on what you think it is exactly, but I would say they're turning it fat. I mean, well under two weeks. Let's put it that way. I don't know that you need it exactly. So you're turning stuff much shorter, right? Mm -hmm. So, what that's one reason why you might have more predictable margins and things. So, but it is telling you something that's very obvious. I mean, I hope it's very obvious without having to look at the accounting that what Micron is doing is much more spec their inventory is much more speculative than Village Supermarkets, the supermarket shelf inventory, because whatever mistakes you're making are solved within a matter of two weeks or so on average at Village, as opposed to um, something that's several months at a company that's involved in um, tech stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we could also look at things that like uh do we have a jeweler or something like that, some higher item, or even tandy we could do, um any of those that have higher gross margins. Cause this is another issue that comes up here with working capital. A lot of people say things like, I hear like, well, how can tandy have such high gross margins? Um and how can supermarkets do so well with such low gross margins? But the supermarket has high gross returns on, um, gross profits versus it's, um, uh, versus it's assets, which is an important number. It really shouldn't matter. It's the amount of gross profit you generate versus the amount of assets you tie up that should matter. So your gross margin can be higher and higher if your turns are lower and lower um and vice versa it should work out either way so like if a supermarket can turn something in five days instead of 10 days it should be above much lower margins because it can generate that much more per uh you know dollar per amount of s- shelf space basically if that shelf turns over twice then i can make you know um i'm if i make two dollars on the first sale and gross profit, and then two dollars in the second sale. That's the same as making one sale at a four dollar gross profit. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's look at Tandy. What was their
0: uh, inventory situation? Thirty-four. To this is in two thousand eighteen.
1: Okay. And then if thirty-four we look, million. Yeah, and then if we look at their cost of goods sold, so using cost of goods sold is important here because it does include the markup. A lot of people will use revenue, but with Tandy, that would be a big mistake because it makes it look like they're turning very fast—eighty some million. But they're just marking up the inventory. They buy it, so you don't want to confuse. I bought for a dollar, marked up to two. Oh, I turned it twice, right? You only turned it once. You turned the dollar that you um, that you paid for it. So here, it's what do we say? So um, so thirty-four million in inventory and thirty-three million cost of goods sold. Correct. So one turn. So they're keeping their store for an entire year. Okay. So that's the really big issue that you're seeing there.
0: Could that tell you a little bit about the actual demand for the products that they're selling in the business?
1: Yeah, it can. And that's the problem that they're facing now. I don't know all the details of what's happened with their accounting thing since they um, delisted and stuff, but it's all related to inventory that got too high um, and and poor inventory control and things like that. Um, But that's also why their gross margin can be that high because they stock all the stuff that almost nobody wants. So when you walk into one of their stores, they're one of the only places that you can find it. Right? I mean, they have more selection than their competitors and stuff. They're willing to take, and they're willing to have very, very poor turns. So I think sometimes people look at them and they're like, oh, how did they have such amazing margins? For whatever reason, people focus a lot on margins and not on turns all the time. So they'll even say things like um, comparing two companies in an industry, and they'll say this one is more attractive because it has higher margins. Whereas it's higher margins, lower turn, this one's lower turns, higher margins. And if you multiply them both together, uh, if you look at it, then their returns are the same in terms of capital, which you can also do that calculation. So you can figure out, we just did turns, right? So like, um, in the case of Tandy, right, it's pretty easy. Their gross profitability is not that amazing because it's actually, if I remember right, lower than village. I'd have to check, but a dollar of inventory at Tandy, because it turns so slowly, Mm -hmm. even though it's, um, the, the gross profits that it's making are what three times the gross margin is like three times, um, villages, villages turning theirs 30 times a year, whereas Tandy's turning theirs once a year, village is actually more profitable on that basis. Like a dollar of inventory through the village system, uh, through a supermarket system is actually making them more money. Each dollar of inventory they have. Now each sale is much lower. Right, So people focus on the sale thing. But you know that a supermarket going to be able to sell a lot. Whereas it's very speculative to hold the inventory for a whole year.
0: I wanted to look at Costco. Sure. So they have their cost uh, with their inventory $11.3 billion, And their cost of goods sold in 2020 $144 billion. Okay. Yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah. So you have a thing where you're moving a lot of in- inventory pretty fast that way. And that's a big help. Um, which is how you can have your margins be so low. And the main thing with Costco and with the supermarket, too, is that really the amount of turns is what's allowing you to absorb your overhead. I mean, so one way to think about break even, right, is you could think about break even like, oh, we need a certain margin. But I think that's kind of crazy because you can't have that sort of margin at a supermarket or something. What you really need, in a sense, is we need a certain level of attendance. If we're going to open up a Costco or a supermarket or something, we need a certain number of turns. We have to turn our inventory we can't have it turn once a month. We have to have it turn once every two weeks or something to absorb all the costs of the store. Because then if you think about it, it's like, okay, well, if I sell this product one time and I have this worker, then that's one thing. But if I can sell it several times in their pay period, right? I'm paying the person the same amount to work two weeks for me. Mm -hmm. Every two weeks I pay them money. But if I can sell this same bit of shelf space, this toothpaste, this, five times versus one time in two weeks, then I'm absorbing the cost of that employee over so many more sales. Mm -hmm. Costco's strategy is to drive um, subscriptions. Yeah. It's to drive more turns by having lower pricing, not to seek out higher pricing on things so that they have, that is a bit of an issue. I think there's actually a, I think there's a conflict of interest. That's pretty severe between Costco and its suppliers in some cases because I'm doubtful that it's as of much benefit to some suppliers as they think to sell through Costco, because if you think about it, it can harm your pricing. It makes your product look cheaper and stuff. And so in the long run, it may be much better to hold your pricing um, because of all the different places you're going to sell it, not just Costco. So I don't know if you really want to sell a lot of batteries or underwear or something through Costco, but plenty of companies do.
0: Look at their gross margins over time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now to be fair to Costco, Costco does different packaging and stuff. So it tries to do, you buy a lot more one time. And so you think of it differently. It's not like directly comparable to other places you would see it, but still a problem that way. Yeah. And then they have the return on capital that they have that way because of that, because of how low the gross margin is. But what we just said is true. It's because of the turns. So if you have very high turns, Costco's numbers in many ways look a lot like a supermarkets, right? Mm -hmm. So like in terms of the actual margins, now their gross margin is lower Um, but their, their EBITDA type numbers and things are very similar. And the return on capital employed is pretty similar. In fact, I'm not sure on average if Costco's return on capital employed is all that much better than someplace like village. However, they village is overcapitalized sometimes, whereas Costco isn't. So that's one difference, but then you have the growth, which allows them to, um, create a lot of value for the company. It also shows you for shareholders. It also shows you that, um, you don't have to have very high returns on capital as long as you never have low ones. So if you reinvest 100% in the business and you have like a 15% return on capital, Costco's been a great stock, right? So 20 years or so, it's been a good stock for people. But when does it ever have better than like, almost never better than 20% returns on capital. Mm -hmm. So it actually doesn't have that impressive a history in terms of return on capital. What it has is very good numbers, uh, very consistently high numbers. and then. We the variability in Costco is incredibly low, right? Yeah, the variance. So sure. that's what's helpful in understanding working capital things and stuff. That's another thing. I mean, this is obvious, but the less you turn something, the more variability there will be in the margins because you're actually counting on like one sale that way to determine what the margins are. Whereas the m- higher frequency, the more predictable the margin is. So even if, so, you could measure Costco's gross mar- uh predictability of gross margins and stuff so and i do that sometimes i say people statistically like just look at it and then you can do a coefficient of variation or whatever relative standard deviation so you could do that if that's what you're comfortable with statistically the other way to do it is to think okay what's my gross margin going to be at a supermarket or something any item you're selling like every 10 days pricing is going to be firm
0: very firm um
1: any product that you're selling once a year it's not
0: Cause you don't need to worry about like discounting and stuff like that. Yeah. So we talked about like
1: fashion or technology. Those things are what maybe two, three times a year. They might have things where they run into problems where they need to change their pricing severely um, because they made a mistake in the earlier season or whatever. Um, Whereas with like jewelry, with, candy with those things, they could be pretty severe mistakes that last for a long time with too much buildup in inventory and stuff like that. Um, Something like Costco, less likely supermarkets, less likely. So you're going to have very firm gross margins and very firm gross margins is generally going to lead to much greater predictability and very slow results and things deteriorating for the business. Right? So like, like a good example is village results aren't as good as they were 20 years ago, but that's, uh, I mean like, well, 10 years ago or so, but, that's because you can see over the last 10 years or whatever that period, you've had creeping expense stuff that hasn't been matched in other areas. So it's usually a pretty slow decay for them because it isn't that their turns collapsed. It isn't that their pricing collapsed. It's like their expenses rose faster than their sales. So the
0: business I mean. became less efficient?
1: Right, but it became less efficient further down.
0: Yeah. That's the key yeah, thing. Yeah, not from like the gross profit or yeah. like the turns. But
1: that's yeah. why where So I what does that tell work?
0: you though? We could pull it up again. I mean, is that the business is getting they're just getting less strict about that. I mean, is it almost inevitable at sometimes that that'll happen?
1: Mm, Not at Costco, not with their (laughs) management and their culture and stuff, but yeah, it it happens at lots of companies, but I think it's an operational problem. Um, We talked about that with Tandy. I don't know exactly. We'd have to check the turns each year and stuff, but I suspect Tandy could be operational issues as much as anything else. Whereas at some other companies, I think it's competitive issues. If you know from listening to this podcast, I'm very biased in terms of certain risks and the big risk that I'm very biased against is come competitive risk so problems that you see with inventory build with lack of turns um, and with poor gross margins and gross profitability are things that I take to be very serious in a way that I don't take operating problems to be serious the fact that your salaries and stuff rose faster is not as concerning to me it could be concerning in the long run but generally your own organization isn't going to do as much damage to you as um, competition is. Mm-hmm. Whereas the, Where you're seeing that at f- the gross level yeah. is uh-huh. really bad. So yeah, if you saw inventory piling up and gross margins falling at the same time, you know, worsening turns and all that, that's something to worry about concerning, but that's also true because there's a paper done on that about gross profits divided by total assets, which is your gross profitability. And I think that's a better number generally than other forms of returns on capital in terms of how pure it's telling you the competitive situation is and how much we worried. If I was running a company um or whatever, running a bunch of different units, business units that were reporting to me and they were like, What number do you need to see all the time? If you see month after month that gross profits divided by total assets are the same or higher, that's gonna give you a lot more confidence. Whereas if it's trending down and they're gonna give you a excuses for why that's happening i'd be worried i think that's the kind of the more persistent number the number that i'd be afraid of in the
0: future it's a good screen as well yeah for good businesses I think that, or like efficient businesses
1: yes i think high so a combination of high turns and high gross margins so that you multiply those two together that number is going to be very helpful in figuring out whether a business is going to have a good future and with the caveat that there's a cyclical element here but
0: improving in that number if you can get improvement in that number over time that's really really important so do you ever like take a percentage of sgna for example on like revenue and kind of do it for all years just to see what has yeah. happened over the years is that i mean do you eyeball it or do you just
1: yeah and you it? have an idea of how much you think it should cost to run something that way i mean that's my complaint with village I mean, I don't know the numbers of that. We could check them. I don't know them off the top of my head, but this bill is say right they're twenty two percent or something. I think you could really run it for seventeen or something. So S G N A, yeah. So I mean, there's other. So let's see. They've got S G N A. What's their S G N A right now? Four, four hundred forty five million. Yeah. So look, this doesn't sound like a big deal. when I'm talking about numbers that aren't that huge. But here's the easiest way to do it. Look at gross profit versus S G N A stuff, right? So. The SGNA is the kind of break even that you have to cross over to make money. Mm-hmm. So let's say you could reduce SGNA by 10%, right? Okay. A t- so a 10% reduction in SGNA, cutting 45 million or whatever from it, at this point would add almost 10% on the gross profit side because gross profits and SGNA are awfully close to each other. Mm-hmm. So um, that's, that's really meaningful because on a net income basis, right? You could have a huge change. So, like SGNA, let's see. So, I mean, you have to adjust for taxes and stuff. But SGNA is uh, four hundred fifty million last year. If it could instead have been four hundred million, yeah, let's say, um, then you would have, after taxes, even um, more than doubled your net income. So and it's a pretty big deal because let's see if we go back in the past.
0: I mean, do you, and, I mean, and, if you like, yeah. And to get like a good feel, because a lot of people probably think, okay, well, how do you know what's normal? Is it looking at other supermarkets mm-hmm. to see sort of what the general is in the industry? Yeah. Look it. at other
1: supermarkets, look at what Walmart's cost and all those sorts of things. I mean, it's huge. Look, Nebraska Furniture Mart, we've talked about. If Nebraska Furniture Mart was as inefficient as Walmart, it would make no money. It's just that Nebraska Furniture Mart is so much more efficient than Walmart, and we talked about that with some banks, some insurance things. They're literally, there's some banks that people are like, "Well, how do they make a higher return on equity or whatever than others?" Well, if they were n- as, if their expenses for doing much of the same stuff was as bad as some of the highest, um, like most inefficient banks I'm aware of, right? That entire thing explains like all their earnings you know, um, if you took in many industries, if you took the best operator and the worst operator in terms of their expenses, that could explain all the difference. So here, if you look the gross profit situation, I think hasn't been that bad for village. So if we look over the last, um, 10, 12 years, whatever we have here, I think it's, hasn't been terrible at all where I see some problems I think are in sales SGNA. So, at, they had um, $305 million in gross profit and $253 million in SG&A back in 2008. Okay. i okay. just taking a percentage on all, all of right. this. Um, yeah. Well, my biggest problem, yeah. So like 20, yeah. There you go. Um, and then if you look at gross profit, you can get an idea. So a, th- a number that matters a lot to me would be, okay, what's SG&A versus gross profits? Okay. Right, so everyone always talks about SG&A versus sales because they do the common size ratio, which is everything versus sales. But one number I like to look at, whether it's advertising or any of those things, is what's the relationship between that and gross profit? So there you go. Yeah, and so my concern there over time is it's become meaningfully higher. I think, um, like as an example, there. So here we go. If you think you back out all the other stuff and you just look at gross profit and sg If we do 2008 and today, okay. Okay. um, That was 305 and 253. So um, we've got a difference there um, of what 42. What do we have there? Uh, We have. Fifty-two million, right? What was left over after sure. the operating profit? Okay. Sure. Anyway, they have other operating things too, and then now you have about sixty-one or something. So about nine million more. So they're making about nine million more dollars mm-hmm. um, after their SG&A stuff, even though they've increased by two hundred million. Yeah, their gross profit. So their gross profit's up like one point six times or something, while their their like earnings are up, you know, fifteen percent or something. So like a sixty percent. Increase in gross profitability only led to like a 15% improvement in reported earnings. It's a big deal because like people look at that and they focus on the earnings, right? So if you look, you could say, well, earnings are flat for the last 10. I mean, we could look, like, Basically, literally they're flat. Yeah, yeah, They were one level there and they're one level now. So some people are looking at them, they're like, okay, well, why was revenue up one and a half times and yet earnings flat? valid argument but a lot of people don't go the one step below that and say okay was gross profit like if we look at gross profit right yeah it's
0: going from 305 million to 506 million it
1: sounds like the same to me like can we do gross profit margin just gross margin sure that's easy yeah so to me it sounds like that's about the same uh overall shift in terms of their ability to convert sales into gross profit doesn't seem to have changed dramatically to me over any of these years let's see Yeah, No difference. So all of it is below the gross profit line. Mm -hmm. So to me... Because SG&A, that's why earnings haven't gone up. I would not buy the argument this is a competitive problem. Okay? Because if it was a competitive problem, how did they increased sales by 1.5 times over 10 years and how did they keep their gross profitability exactly the same we know they didn't change their credit terms and stuff they're selling to the general public we know all that stuff so
0: what went wrong yeah because as you said earlier you would know it's a a competitive problem you would see it right there in the gross profits
1: yeah we can i mean like we've talked about before like if you go look at buckle or something it has a problem with gross profits um so when that happens i would say you know it's not a competitive problem but most people's first explanation is to try to explain this as a competitive problem like oh it got harder to compete and stuff now to be fair to them i think there's totally things that had nothing to do with the organization that caused this for instance i think labor costs on some things that weren't just people in the store probably went up more than food uh costs Mm -hmm. like there was a lower inflation period Mm -hmm. and stuff which it might be easier for a supermarket if there was a little more inflation in grocery items because then you could charge more keep uh pace with people's wages and stuff. Yeah. It was hard that way. But I think that exactly that's a sales it's a SGNA problem. But here if you look, that increase is less than one tenth of SGNA. So an inefficiency that's like spending 10% more or less on overhead. Okay. Create something where your earnings, instead of being in this case, your you should have like fifteen million dollars more of earnings, which should be as I say, two hundred million dollars of market
0: cap. It doesn't look like they're benefiting from scale at all,
1: right? It doesn't. Well, and it hasn't because they've they've shrunk over. uh, They've their their sgna has grown over time. Not just like it's not benefiting from scale, but as if you're getting worse as you scale up. Yeah. Um, but it isn't something that's unique to them. It's something that you've seen with some other supermarket things, and I think part of it is cost pressure that it's groceries have been so cheap for the since the financial crisis versus people's wages that anything you have to pay people for whether it's it things or whatever you can't keep down at the same rate there i also think in this case it's some executive compensation and things like that but that doesn't explain the whole difference but i think it does explain that it's not a competitive problem which is why i think you need to focus in on things like gross profit and stuff now you could say it doesn't matter Like, okay, so why does it matter? Either it's something that I, the management isn't doing that great or the culture is not right or it's competitive. Why do I need to know like the difference between it? But I think it helps to know in the, like better understand the business. And I think the gross numbers help with that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we should look at the other side of the coin. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the best podcasts we've ever done, Jeff. Well, let's see if other people think that, but, yeah. But you could see that right there, right? Their gross profits over time. Even though revenue has gone up, yep. gross profits have gone nowhere but declined. Mm-hmm. And
1: theirs is interesting because we could also look at their turns. Because I think if they're... T- so here we go. So you can see that gross profits had been rising for a while, gross margins, and then they start to decline. Yeah. Um, but their gross margins have held up fairly well. And I think the reason for that, if we look, is let's look at the balance sheet. All right.
0: And yeah. And then let's look at the for people listening 125 million in okay. inventories. And yeah. you can look at the income statement. Um cost of goods sold 523 million. Right.
1: But if we look back in like 2007, 2008, all that period I'm trying to see. Um yeah, so let's see. Okay, so back to the balance sheet then.
0: And um I'm sorry inventories right there yeah so
1: they were turning, so they were turning over turning way more five back times in the day. back then yeah so they were turning five times a year back then and where do we say now we have it at it's 120 and so that's more like yeah their turns have four. gone down
0: returns have gone no around.
1: no it's even worse than that yeah
0: so their turns have gone down dramatically yeah um i mean look here for people listening in 2007 they had 70 million in inventories mm-hmm. and they had a cost of goods sold of 323 million so they yeah. were turning it over over multiple times and now yeah. it's uh what do we say 125 million in inventories and 523 million yeah. in um, 2020. And then you see their margins as well as, as Jeff said, 2008. Yeah,
1: I was gonna say, it, it's not a dramatic difference in the turns, but it's happening at a time that you're also having margins. See, normally what happens, is your margins are deteriorating because you're marking things down. So if you mark things down, you should turn your inventory faster, other things equal. So what it's telling you in terms of demand and stuff is that it's worse than it appears. It's partially showing up as a, Profit margin problem, a gross margin problem, yeah. but it's partially showing up as also more inventory is building up,
0: demand and pricing issues. Yeah, because typically, right, supply demand. When there's less demand, you know, you you discount it, whatever, try to sell. But they're just kind of having both issues.
1: Yeah, and if we were to do it for each and every year, sometimes it can tip you off. I don't think it's that important to like focus on that. The but if you were trying to predict quarterly earnings and things, what you would do is look because what probably happens for most companies and, and might have happened here is the build and inventory Inventory happens first, so the the inventory turnover goes down, and then they cut their uh they then they cut their prices. You don't start by cutting your prices; you cut your prices in response to inventory that's building up too mm-hmm. much. Um, so, like here, if we look, they s- built pretty high. Let's see. Okay, yeah, all right. Okay, so let's go to the um, income statement now. Okay, so yeah, because in the first half of the period we're looking at. They doubled inventory and it took them a long time to double costs of uh, goods sold. So they they started to build up an inventory in a way that you could have seen before they started to have the gross margins um, come down. And if we looked on a quarterly basis, it should be much more obvious because this is a company that turns pretty fast, you know, so it's making several sales a year. Um, on a, on a, like a quarterly basis would be much more obvious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then they, of course, as you'd expect, then also suffer more from declining scale, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, but gross profit had held up pretty well until fairly recently. Like it was fairly flat until the last few years. So, um, and that allowed them to have fairly good operating profits considering how far down sales came. I mean, that's a very big sales drop for a company to do that i've seen lots of companies retailers where a sales drop of 20 to 30 percent would cause them to be significantly uh losing money and buckle was never losing money um but the the reason for that is accepting somewhat lower gross margins like we said and somewhat lower turns and then slowing down the growth obviously
0: wow what a great podcast
1: well look their sgna actually right yeah that's pretty impressive their sgna has not really gone up in like seven years.
0: Yeah, it's like a percentage of so it. So that's a company that's profit. aware
1: of the fact that it was a growth company and isn't anymore. Because you don't see that usually where growth companies can manage. Yeah, but yeah. you can see that it gets that it obviously gets worse. Mm-hmm. Um, the sg a numbers get worse because the sales come down by so much. You know, um, but I like to think more of it in terms of like SG&A being covered by cost of goods uh, by being ca- covered by gross profit as the break-even for people to think that way. Because when people are like, what are the risks here? The risks are probably, I mean, I don't know, but the risks are usually, if you have that much SGNA, you can't get rid of it. So like the only reason why you're making money is because your gross profit is this amount now. So if you could hit a point where your gross profit was steady, then you're okay. But this company has had declining gross profit for a few years um, and you're not really gonna be able to cut your SGNA. you know, you shouldn't expect that. Uh, by that much so you have to keep that gross profit over that amount Um, and you know they are at a point where we can see let's see sgna is now that's pretty impressive their sgna now as a percent of sales is not that different than it was at the beginning of this period 13 years ago so it shows you they're probably a lot more
0: disciplined about it because they're forced to you think yeah yeah it was in 2007 it was 24% and then in 2020 it's 27% it's
1: basically flat since 2013 right like the actual dollar amount yes so the SG&A percentage has gotten worse but the actual dollar amount is the same which is because revenues decline yeah and so as a result like you said margins have even gotten worse so gross profits gone down a lot so obviously profits have gone down a lot but the only reason there are any profits at all is because they stopped growing SGNA as fast as they were before when things started getting worse. So, and there's some companies that won't that don't do that. And if you imagine if that happened here, their profits would basically be gone. You know, if they had kept trying to
0: grow at the same rate. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Go to slash app to get access to our podcast backlog. We're about to record our premium episode right now. So go over there if you want to listen to it. It's always one of my favorite episodes that we do. I thank you so much for tuning with both of us. Thank you so much for all the support. We will see you in the next podcast.